This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It is a great pleasure to be with you. And just to set it up here, you can hear this show on the radio. You can live stream us on the Internet. Live stream us on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. You can hear us throughout the country, all around the world, throughout the solar system, including the Milky Way. And uh, during the week, you can hear us on Fox Business, FBN, Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow, and it runs 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't get us at 4, you can just text your favorite 9-year-old. And she will show you how to DVR the show at 4 p.m. And um, the show does run again 7 to 8 if you miss everything. So <clears throat> a number of uh, issues here. I'm going to begin with the Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden got busted, didn't he? Guy could spend 17 years in jail. Very salacious indictment by by uh, Prosecutor David Weiss. But I want to tell you a couple things about this indictment. A couple of things, okay? This is really, in my opinion, not what it appears to be. Yes, it's a 56-page grand jury indictment. It's a see-me indictment. Uh, I guess mostly misdemeanors, but a couple of felonies. Let's see how many felonies there are. I don't know. In any event... Um, Hunter Biden was due to appear this coming week before the House Oversight Committee. I think it might have been a combined Judiciary Committee Oversight Committee. But in any event, he was expected to be deposed. And that deposition, of course, would be under oath private, closed-door deposition. So my point is, this indictment from David Weiss, he's the, he's the grand capo of all this, he's the head of this thing. Um, my view as a non-lawyer, just simple politics, is that this gives Hunter Biden an excuse not to be deposed. It makes him essentially untouchable. He's going to say, I can't go up there because of this grand jury. He'll use it as an excuse. And therefore, he will not be forced into disclosing all of the details 
of the alleged influence peddling and bribery crimes that might, of course, just happen to come up in a discussion. And that's important because, look, at as we listen to Joe Biden, Babylon, he did it again, what, Thursday, I think. I have no influence, no uh, involvement with my son's business dealings. He said that three times. It's a lie, he said. It's a lie. It's a lie. Well, it's not a lie. Everybody knows that he was involved in Hunter Biden's business dealings. Everybody knows that. We have checks to prove that. He received money. He made phone calls. He went to restaurants. We know that he was involved. He sat next to Hunter when they shook down this uh, Chinese uh, investor a while back. Okay, we know that. But what we don't know, and this is the key point, are the details of how money got into various accounts, LLCs, and dribbled out into Joe Biden. We don't know those details. Now, we know a lot because of what the whistleblowers did. We know a lot because of what James Comer has done. We know a lot about all this, but we don't have it buttoned down, never have had it buttoned down, because Hunter Biden hasn't testified now. Schwerin has testified, and some of the others have testified, but not Hunter Biden. And Biden is not going to talk about that because he's been busted for not paying his taxes. Three felonies, six misdemeanors. He could, could go to jail for 17 years. He's not going to have any fun in jail. But he's not going to go to Capitol Hill either. That's my non-legal political suspicion. And in fact, because he becomes untouchable as a result of this grand jury indictment, this whole series of events actually brings the GOP oversight investigators further away from President Biden. A lot of questions will go unanswered because Hunter is going to be untouchable for quite some time. Do not believe David Weiss. Do not have any confidence in David Weiss. I think special counsel David Weiss decided to put Hunter Biden on ice for exactly these reasons. Without him as a key witness, it will be very difficult for Comer and the others to bust him and to get to his father. I mean, to be honest with you, kids, I don't really care about Hunter Biden. I mean, he's had his troubles. I think he's a crook. I think this is not about his addiction because before and after and during, he had this seamy lifestyle. But his companies were getting money from China, from Ukraine, from elsewhere, Romania, who knows where, Russia. That money was being funneled, in part, to his father while they were vice president and afterwards. But we haven't buttoned all that down exactly. And I can just imagine 
Special Counsel Weiss talking to Attorney General Merrick Garland and say, well, look, look, we got to do something because the IRS whistleblowers made such a strong case and Judge Noriega in Wilmington blew up the first phony deal beyond repair. So let's protect our boss, Joe, by throwing Hunter under the bus. Put him on ice for the rest of the election period. And, you know, if Papa Biden beats President Trump, Biden will pardon his son right away. If Biden loses, he'll have time to pardon his son right away. The White House press secretary yesterday, KJP, Karine Jean-Pierre, says pride that the president would never pardon his son. Uh, well, of course, that makes it all the more likely that there would be a pardon. Remember, politicians always say no, 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 right up until the time they say yes and change their mind. I mean, even if Joe Biden loses, he still has a couple of months, right? November, December, and first part of January to pardon his son. But meanwhile, because of this grand jury indictment, the son can say to Congress, you can't hold me in contempt because I'm already under indictment. And of course, at a bare minimum, Hunter can take the Fifth Amendment. So that's my take on this. I think it's phony baloney. I think, you know, this is coming right out of the White House. They had to do something, and this is what they did just a few days before Hunter was scheduled to be deposed up on Capitol Hill by the House Oversight Committee. Coincidence? I don't think so. Politics? Of course. Of course. Now, on the legal, legal side, Jonathan Turley writes a good column today in the New York Post, basically saying there's no explanation why special counsel David Weiss would allow the statute of limitations to run out. And Turley also writes that this indictment keeps the focus squarely on taxes not paid, but it's not how the money was earned, quote-unquote, in the first place. That's my point. Those are the details. Now, there's evidence about these details, but it isn't conclusive evidence yet. And... Uh, in the second indictment, Weiss spends more time on the salacious use of the money, use of the money, right? He was buying hookers instead of paying his taxes. But there's no part of that indictment that mandates how and why the money was given to the Bidens. That's the key point. Where did that money come from? Where did it come from? And why did it come from? Well, that's the influence peddling. That could be the bribery charge between the head of Burisma bribing Papa Joe and Hunter. But we can't get there yet. 
circumstantially, Jamie Comer and uh, the others are there, but not exactly specifically. And that keeps Joe Biden away. Now, Joe Biden has lied, and the public is aware of his lies, and the public knows that Joe was involved. That's easy. That's one of the reasons his polls are so bad and will continue to fall because he's going to continue to lie. But to have Hunter deposed the way Schwerin, his partner, was deposed and others, now that would have been something because you're under oath. And Hunter will put up that excuse. I just got busted by this grand jury. I just got indicted. Can't talk to you. You know this is confidential, quote unquote. Or he'll just take the fifth for that reason. And part of the country will say, yeah, well, he has to do that. This is exactly what Weiss wants. This is exactly what Merrick Garland wants. This is exactly what Joe Biden wants. They're putting Hunter on ice for a year. They're kind of throwing him under the bus. But the likelihood is he won't stay under the bus for long because of his father's pardon power. Meanwhile, no under oath deposition about where the money came from or why the statute of limitations was permitted to run out. These are very important points. Very important points. This thing's been rigged. Believe me when I tell you that the senior people in the White House, I've been there, folks. I've been in and out of politics a long time. I've served in very senior jobs in the White House. I know the discussions. And I believe it was no coincidence that just a couple days before being scheduled to be deposed, boom, this indictment comes down. Very interesting. Why now? Well, because <laughs> he don't want to go up to the Hill this coming week. And the indictment itself is highly flawed because it does not require a discussion of how the money got to Hunter. How he spent it, all this seamy stuff, yeah, 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 I get that. Buying hookers instead of paying taxes. Bad, bad boy, bad boy. But I'd like to know where that money came from. That is the missing piece. And that is what Joe Biden and Merrick Garland and David Weiss don't want anybody to know because those missing pieces will indict Joe Biden. That is the key point. So we'll, have, we'll see how it goes. We got a uh, great lawyer, Greg Jarrett, beyond this uh, top of the next hour to talk about this. Also, leading off, we're going to talk about Israel. Israel is whooping Hamas right now, but the uh, Biden administration wants a timeline to say you got to have stopped by the end of the year. General Keene, Jack Keene, is going to be here. And then this whole business of anti-Semitism, why haven't these college presidents been thrown out yet? We're going to talk about all that over the course of the show. But I wanted to start out with Hunter. I wanted to start, Hunter is going to check out. Hunter's going to be on ice. Hunter's going to be untouchable for the election year. How about that, folks? Shocking, isn't it? Absolutely shocking. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. 
back to the Larry Kudlow Show. So, 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 these uh, weak-kneed, pathetic college presidents still have their jobs. It's now Saturday. They testified uh, Thursday in front of the House Education Committee. And my friend, Elise Stefanik, who's part of the Republican leadership in the House, pounded them. Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard. Liz McGill, the president of uh, U Pennsylvania, and also the one from MIT. Okay, this is just unbelievable stuff. Unbelievable stuff. Asked whether calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment. And she responded, well, it can be, depending on the context. The context. Oh, my God. Stefanik says, after this week's pathetic and morally bankrupt testimony by university presidents, when answering my questions, the Education and Workforce Committee is launching an official congressional investigation with the full force of subpoena power into Penn, MIT, and Harvard, and others. And you had a lot of alumni, particularly Penn alumni. One guy's a money manager. He pulled out of a $100 million donation. It's a lot of money, $100 million. The business school, the Wharton School, got people there rebelling, donors rebelling. Um, McGill, the head of Penn, she's still around. I mean, apparently they called an emergency board meeting yesterday, but nothing happened. At least I haven't seen anything. I've been looking for it. These presidents are pathetic. I mean, this wave of anti-Semitism is just awful. Awful. This great country of ours, it's like the 1930s. And you've got these crazy college professors. And they don't know anything. And they teach these kids things that are simply untrue. Israel, a democracy. A free, freedom-loving democracy. Hamas, a bunch of murderers. Terrorists, murderers, barbarians killing 1,400 people on October 7th. Let's not forget that. And it's not the first time they've done this kind of thing. And you've got these crazy professors with tenure blaming Israel for genocide. What? And then these goofy kids who just eat it up and then they march, paint slogans. We're going to have the great Alan Dershowitz on and talk some more about that. He's actually got a book about it. This wave of anti-Semitism is awful. But these college presidents should be fired. They need to put people into these colleges who will straighten things out. Put some moral clarity into it. They used to be great schools. They're not great schools anymore. They're diminished schools. Terrible story. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a break. We're going to go to the Israeli war with General Jack Keane. Much more coming for this entire show. Please, folks, stick around.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Bringing in a new uh, new topic. It looks like Israel, the IDF, is absolutely kicking butt with Hamas. That's what it looks like. We will uh, we will see if this is continued, and we'll see if the Biden administration allows it to be continued. And bringing in our great friend and mentor and teacher, General Jack Keane. Retired four-star general and chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst and also a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. I was in the room when he got it. General Keene, welcome back, sir. Thanks for helping us today. Yeah, delighted to be here, Larry, as, as always. Thank you, sir. Um, just a quick review. How do you see it? It looks like Israel's making great progress in Gaza but it also looks like a, a second front is opening up uh, in the north in Lebanon from Hez- Hezbollah. Uh, how do you see it, General? Well, first of all, yes. I mean, Israel is conducting, uh, you know, clearing operations. They did in northern Gaza. There's still still some of that operation uh, taking place there, and still some uh, you know some combat activity. But the the main effort has shifted to the south. Uh, a city where uh, Han, Han Yunus is the center of that. It's the major city uh, in the south. It's where most of uh, Hamas's leaders are. Um, so our audience understands. Hamas uh, started this, you know, they're more of a military organization than a terrorist organization that operates in small cells and pokes its head out, uh, conducting surprise attacks, you know, kind of characteristic of terrorists. They're organized in five brigades, 24 to 25 battalions uh, as part of those five brigades. The Israelis have destroyed the equivalent of one of those brigades. And uh, so there's four remaining in some form of uh, combat effectiveness. So much of what Israel is doing lies ahead of it. And and I know people, uh, because war is now 24-7, People have expectations that things are just going to end quickly. And what the Israelis are about is systematically taking down uh, Hamas as it hides in its tunnel complex, shields the civilians to protect itself. And, and this is a laborious task. And also to give our audience some sense of this, the Israelis have developed a grid square system uh, in the southern part of uh, Gaza where they 
they tell uh, the civilian population to move out of grid square X and you can go to Y and Z, uh, and which would be safer for you. Well, just think about that for a second. Uh, that certainly is helping the civilians, and the Israelis have, have said that they want to get the civilians out of the battlefield as much as they possibly can. But it also tells Hamas, you know, where they're going and what uh, what their focus is going to be. So that increases the liability, certainly, for uh, Israeli's military troops. I, most people who are looking at this grid system that they've developed, while it's imperfect, give the Israelis an awful lot of credit. Uh, for taking that extra step to try to preserve uh, civilian life as much as possible. To give you another sense and remind us what we're dealing with here with Hamas, there's an open strip of land on the coast referred to as Al-Mawasi. There's no infrastructure there whatsoever. So the Israelis have told people to go there and remove yourself completely from city-type infrastructure. It's about uh, you know eight, eight, eight miles in length. It's a narrow piece of ground. And what does Hamas do? As the people have moved in there, they start firing rockets from there. Mm. They did that yesterday. Mm. And, of course, what they want the Israelis to do is return fire. And they have not. Mm. And that's where civilians are – let me just understand this. Civilians are shepherded there – and then Hamas attacks the civilians? No. The civilians have moved to El Mawasi, which is, uh, as I indicated, just a strip of land on the coast. Right. Uh, and there's nothing there. But they're, you know, they're setting up tents and trying to survive there. Right. And then Hamas sets up rockets and missiles and fires them into Israel from there. Oh, Because I they see. want the Israelis to fire back and kill uh. the civilians. So they're hiding. Another, they're hiding. another example of how, how diabolical, you know, Hamas is. This yeah. is, this, as you know, Larry, there is pressure on the Israeli government and the IDF by the United States behind the scenes. The, the United States is pressuring them to end this campaign in the South in a matter of weeks. Mm-hmm. And the, the Israelis have picked up the tempo of their operations. But nonetheless, to do this systematically, it's going to take some time. And what they should not do is go to a premature ceasefire. If something like that happens because of undue United States and international pressure, Hamas is going to declare a victory because they'll have their leaders intact. They'll have a lot of their organizations still intact. And they, they will have the ability to reattack at some point. And that is what the Israelis this time around really want to eliminate. As much as we say we want to dismantle Hamas, what the Israelis really want to do is prevent Hamas from ever being able to conduct a consequential attack on Israel again. It was very much the same objective that the United States had after the tragedy of 9-11. We went to Afghanistan to make certain that the al-Qaeda could never again conduct an attack like that on the United States. And, of course, that that largely succeeded. That never did happen. So that's what this is about. We who look at this at the Institute for the Study of War believe strongly, let the Israelis finish what they started. It is about the security of the Israeli people and the sovereignty of the Israeli nation and its very existence. 
Let them finish the job. Well, there are reports, as you just indicated, that um, Anthony Blinken and others are telling Israel, you've got to end this thing in a couple of weeks by the end of the year. So that's like three weeks. Uh, I don't see how that can get done. Well, militarily, it cannot. Uh, given uh, what I just said, that uh, the majority of Hamas's organization is still capable of fighting. Hmm. And that has to be dismantled. And because it's not exposing itself, I mean, this is not two armies facing itself out on the field of play, so to speak. They're hiding. They don't want to be found. And they're hiding much of their military infrastructure. And, of course, they're hiding the hostages as well. So this makes the operation considerably complex, given the vast amount of tunnels that are, are beneath, the, beneath the cities, obviously, in, in, in Gaza. And there's still roughly 130-some-odd hostages, I might add, some of whom are American hostages. What are we going to do about that? I mean, if you can't mop them up in three weeks, what are we going to do about that? I, I think, you know, Hamas broke from the past and took these hostages. They had never done anything like that. They wanted these hostages clearly as leverage. You saw them use it to delay Israel's military operation. They gave up some hostages. And I think they'll keep hostages, and they'll offer some up again, once again, likely to delay their operations. And then they're going to hold on to a certain number of them, um, likely most of them being males and, and the IDF soldiers that they have, mm. to protect the regime leadership. The regime leadership uh, obviously wants to survive this thing, and they're, and they're going to use those hostages, I, I suspect, as the heads to do that. What's doing up north? Um, our Fox reporters... Uh, have been reporting uh, an increase in activity, in military activity, uh, coming from Hezbollah. And, of course, Israel has to return fire uh, up in the north part and in, you know, Lebanon. That looks like that whole issue is still very much alive. Yes. I mean, what what Hezbollah is doing is, is sort of, certainly supporting Hamas by opening up uh, – a limited front that forces Israel to put a number of the IDF troops up there, and they're keeping that level of activity high enough so that those troops, you know, cannot go into the campaign in the south. Now, what even though they've increased the level of of, of attacks uh, into Israel, they have not unleashed the powerhouse that they really have, and that's the hundred and thirty thousand. Uh, rockets and missiles that are, have greater range, more lethality, and more precision than what Hamas has. And they have the capability of n not just attacking across the border, which we're seeing with artillery and mortars and some short-range rockets, but they can reach every city in Israel, given the ranges of those systems. And they have not done that. So that front would, when we think about the northern front opening up, and Hamas coming into the war, I mean, excuse me, Hezbollah coming into the war, what we're really talking about is them unleashing hmm. elements of that 130,000 long-range rockets and missiles they have, and, and the target would be Israeli urban centers. That would be a different front. The Israelis would respond 
with massive amount of air power. And if they couldn't handle that job themselves, Larry, they would ask the United States to assist. They never, ever asked us from 1948 to the present to ever, ever assist with our own weapons and our own troops. But if that, if they needed help, we would certainly assist them. We have given them all the information we have on where those rockets, missiles, launchers are, storage sites, everything we know about it, they have from us. And if they wanted our physical help, certainly I cannot imagine the Biden administration saying no to a request like that. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a very important statement. Uh, with the, the United States would do that. That's right. They've never asked us to do that before. Uh, General, can we take a break? I want to talk to you about some other matters. Uh, General Frank McKenzie is saying we should, the United States has got to respond to the Houthi attacks. And I'd like to talk some about Iran. If we could just uh, give a quick commercial break, sir, and we'll come right back to you if that's okay. Folks, we're talking sure. Gen- Thank you, uh, General Jack Keane, uh, retired four-star chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst and Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. Uh, former Mideast commander calls on Biden to respond to Houthi attacks. That's going to be the next subject. And then, of course, we want to talk about the Iran story. I'm Kudlow. We're talking with General Keene. We'll be right back, folks. Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst and Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. Uh, General Keane, I'll read you a story. Former Mideast commander calls on Biden to respond to Houthi attacks. Retired General Frank McKenzie said Iran has taken the lack of a strong U.S. military response as an invitation to continue its aggressive behavior. And then he goes on to say, sometimes you have to throw a pitch. You can't catch eternally because eventually the law of average is going to turn against you and you're going to take a significant escalatory event on a ship. Uh, This, of course, the Houthis are assaulting commercial shipping. Houthis are also firing rockets at Israel uh, and so forth. You probably know, Mackenzie, and let me get your opinion on this. Why aren't we responding? Yeah, this is largely the White House is doing here. They, They fear that if we take aggressive action against the Houthis or against the Iranian proxies in Iraq and Syria who just in the last 24 hours, conducted another 10 attacks uh, on our bases, they believed that that could possibly escalate and we would be at a war with Iran. I I think that is completely unfounded, given the history uh, of Iran, who uses these proxies and don't want to get involved directly themselves. And certainly, I completely, I know General McKenzie well. He was an outstanding commander at Central Command. Uh, which is the the U.S. military command that oversees the the Middle East. And uh, he's absolutely right. One, we should declare them a terrorist organization, which the Biden administration removed that designation when they come in. That was a complete absurdity. They did it to uh, placate the Iranians 
you know, to help begin this diplomatic overture to them that they made, they also pulled back on the Trump's oil sanctions, mm. which has now made Iran flush with money. All these signals indicate to Iran that the United States does not want to play a strong hand uh, in the Middle East, and they are clearly taking advantage uh, advantage of it. And, and look, at Putin isn't in Russia if he didn't think the United States uh, was in a weakened position after Afghanistan, and likely that Biden he sees as, as a weak leader, and like President Xi, he sees the United States in decline. What the American people have to understand is these things are connected. Russia's aggression, Iran and Hamas's aggression, and all the proxies in the Middle East, and President Xi's aggression that he has stepped up in the last two or three years, which triples what he had done in the previous years, all are related because they operate in their own national interests, but they're cooperating with, us, with each other to take advantage of what they see as the United States' vulnerability. And they're advancing their national interests because they think they can get away with it. And what Mackenzie is saying, you've got to convince them they're not going to get away with it. You have to respond, and he's absolutely right. We still, to this day, have not enforced the Iranian sanctions. I mean, I, I just find that incredible. And Kirby, John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, he has said this past week, he was very clear, he said that they understand that Iran is running the Houthis, okay, and that Iran is running Hezbollah and Hamas. He said that. So I'm just watching this. My mouth drops. Uh, why aren't we doing anything about it? You've suggested how tough we should be on Iran. Iran is still selling a lot of oil to China. Their foreign exchange reserves have gone up. Their oil revenues have gone up. Uh, they're the puppet master. They're the paymaster. And yet we've had no response. It's like we're more afraid of Iran than Iran is afraid of us. That can't be a good thing. Oh, it's not. And, and you know, the other part of this is our allies in the region are watching this. I mean, can you imagine we, we just we've developed these improved relationships that the Trump team started with the UAE, Bahrain, two Arab countries, and, and also Sudan and Morocco with Israel normalized relations. And they, they're doing that uh, certainly because they want the economic relationship with Israel. But what's really behind it is they're stitching together uh, people to be able to stand up against Iran, and the United States is part of that. So we're undermining uh, all of that because of our weakness right there in front of our uh, our allies, our Arab allies in the region, but not even responding to being attacked ourselves in any consequential way. What are they thinking in terms of U.S. ability to help protect them? You know, if they're attacked, watching how feeble we are. That the Biden administration is, is thinking that, look, at if we escalate, uh, then Iran's going to escalate and we're going to walk up this ladder of escalation, which could lead to war. That paralysis, that fear is what held Obama back for years mm. from being able to confront his adversaries. It's why he didn't provide aid in any consequential way to help the uh, to help the Ukrainians. It's why. He didn't respond when Assad uses chemical weapons. 
uh, even though he said he would. And to show that kind of weakness, our adversaries just keep coming. And that's, that's the reality of what we're facing. And this is coming out of the White House. It's their fear and their paralysis that is holding back the United States military from doing what they would want to do here, which is respond consequentially to these attacks. I mean, look, at um, I work for President Trump. Uh, I had something to do with designing the sanctions. But even more than that, remember Trump, Trump bombed the airport in Syria. That was a shot across the bow. He did that while they were having dessert with uh, Xi Jinping in Mar-a-Lago. Then Trump wound up bombing uh, ISIS to death, basically. And Trump took out Soleimani, uh, who was the head of all the terrorist operations. Um, you know, he, he was the master of all that. We didn't, Iran didn't come at us. They stopped. I mean, when we showed strength, they stopped. That's exactly what Reagan did in the 80s. Yeah. When the uh, when the Iranians were interfering with the flow of oil out of the uh, uh, out yeah. of the Gulf, we put our ships out there to escort them with some other international ships, and they came after us. And what did Reagan do? He went right after them. He knocked down their oil platforms, and he attacked the patrol bases that right. were attacking uh, us. What happened? General Jack Keane, thank you, sir. We appreciate your rundown very, very much. Talk soon. Appreciate it. All right, folks, we're going to take a break, and we're going to go back to this crazy Hunter Biden story with Greg Jarrett. I'm Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So we're going to return to this crazy Hunter Biden story. And I'm a cynic about this. I'm a political cynic. I know that he got busted with this uh, grand jury indictment by the head uh, capo, David Weiss, the special counsel. But the fact is, I think this puts Hunter Biden on ice. This makes him untouchable. He will not be forced to depose privately under oath uh, in front of the... The uh, House Oversight Committee and the Jud- Judiciary Committee, I guess Jim Jordan's going to be involved, because of this indictment. Gives him an excuse to say nothing. So where did this money come from? Anyway, we're going to talk to my pal Greg Jarrett, Fox News analyst. He's got his new book out, The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. Maybe we'll get into some patriotic documents. Greg, welcome. Thank you. We've got plenty of time now. We've got the whole half hour here. We're going to take a break in the middle, so no rush. But really, you heard me last night. We were talking about it for a little while, uh, you and Tolman. I mean, I think this is a very clever ploy to throw Hunter Biden under the bus just for a little while, but it basically makes the guy untouchable, makes him, puts him out of play. So now he's not going to be deposed. And, Greg, one other thing. I'm reading this morning uh, Jonathan Turley, uh, who's a smart guy. He said, well, you know, this, was, this indictment didn't get anywhere near where the money came from in the first place. And yeah. uh, the whole issue of the, you know, foreign, being a foreign agent. So what do you make of this now? you got running room. What do you think? Well, Professor Turley is absolutely correct, and so are you. Uh, And, uh, you know, you missed your calling, as I said yesterday. You could have been the next Clarence Darrow. (laughs) Yes, sir. You 
know, you're right when you said, and your observations are twofold. One, this allows Hunter Biden to avoid his deposition by saying, oh, you know, now now that these, uh, you know, bad people at my father's Justice Department have indicted me for tax crimes, I can't uh, appear at my deposition. I'll take the fifth. But the second part of it, and, and Turley alludes to this, and actually I mentioned it with you on the air yesterday, what's conspicuous in this indictment against Hunter Biden is what's not in it. There's no money laundering or bribery or foreign lobbying crimes, nothing whatsoever to do with the Burisma shakedown that directly involved Joe Biden. Now, that's by design. This is a clever feint by the U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who was forced uh, to bring these new tax charges because he was publicly shamed into doing it uh, by the IRS whistleblowers that blew the lid on his preferential treatment and his cover-up. And so you can just understand the machinations here going through the minds of Weiss in the U.S. Attorney's Office and Merrick Garland, okay, we'll charge Hunter, you know, with these tax crimes, uh, evasion, failure to pay, filing false returns, which is uh, tax fraud. Uh, but we won't touch anything associated with Joe Biden. So the protection racket, as I said yesterday, is still alive and well. Yeah, that's a great point, the protection racket. Um Charlie writes, uh, the indictment keeps the focus squarely on taxes not paid, not how the money was earned in the first place. And then he does go on, as you do, um, FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. FARA was used to go after Donald Trump associates like Paul Manafort. You know, that's a big deal. And it's a big deal because um, look at the countries involved. They're not our friends. Most of them are enemies, including China including Russia. Uh, I don't know about Romania. And then, of course, the Burisma stuff in the Ukraine. I mean, um, who's wise kidding here? Who are they trying to kid? Well, he's counting on the mainstream media to, uh, who are apologists for the Bidens, uh, to, you know, carry their water. Uh, and sure enough, that's exactly. I was watching uh, several uh, network shows yesterday, and they, you know, they've fallen for this clever feint. Um, but as I say, you know, they're not digging into where the money came from mm -hmm. uh, and how it flowed into Biden-controlled accounts. Some twenty shell companies. Um, it's clearly money laundering, and and you're right, the FARA violations. Uh, Foreign Agents Registration Act. Anybody in Donald Trump's orbit, um, you know, got charged with that. Uh, even Bob Menendez, uh, the Democrat senator from New Jersey, has been charged with fair, but not Hunter Biden. Mm. I mean, that is such an obvious crime that should have been charged years ago against Hunter Biden. And yet, Weiss and the DOJ won't charge the obvious crimes that involve Joe Biden because they're still running interference for the president. Yeah, I mean, I think all these uh, news reports are focused on the, you know, unseemly and salacious activities that Hunter did with uh, money. Uh, okay, and everyone's going, ooh and ah, ooh and ah. 
But okay, that's fine. Pay your damn taxes. But where did the money come from? The other thing that um, that uh, Turley says, says in the second indictment, Weiss spends more time detailing the salacious use of this money rather than how and why it was given to the Bidens. I mean, Greg Jarrett, I think you got to connect these dots in order to get Joe Biden. My point is, everybody knows Joe Biden's lying, that he didn't have any uh, engagement with his son's business, okay? So he says that, I guess, Thursday. Uh, it's a lie, it's a lie, it's a lie. Nobody believes that. And it's affecting his pulse, and you see it in the numbers. But, 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 you have to dig in and find out exactly how he was engaged. Now, I know there's a lot of evidence out there, Greg. Maybe you can walk through some of that. But to connect the dots, I think you need Hunter Biden. I think you need Hunter Biden. And this takes Hunter out of play. Yeah, it it, it does. And, you know, with a, a big, uh, you know, assist from the U.S. attorney, yes. who, as I say, is, is not really going after the real crimes here. The tax crimes arose from Hunter's corrupt influence peddling schemes and the evidence is very compelling that his father, Joe Biden, actively aided and abetted those schemes. All you have to do is look at the documents, the testimony, White House logs, photos, emails, text messages. All of it uh, has been uncovered by the Oversight Committee. They implicate Joe Biden, showing that he would, for example, get on the telephone and talk with Hunter's overseas clients. He would meet personally uh, with his son's foreign partners. He even attended their closely guarded meetings. You know, Joe Biden was the Biden brand. There was nobody else who was of any value, uh, which meant that Joe was selling access to himself, promises of influence. Devin Archer, uh, who was Hunter's uh, former partner, confirmed that the father was sending signals and operating willingly as leverage for the money. And, they, you know, Larry, they kept it all a secret. There's a smoking gun email on the laptop advising, don't mention Joe's involvement by name. So they conjured up these code names for him, Celtic and the big guy. Uh, so while Joe was operating in the shadows, Hunter was the bagman selling his dad to the world and the Biden family got rich from it. The paper trail shows it. But Greg Jarrett, they were just loans. They were paying, paying back for loans. That's what Jamie Raskin says. That's what Abby Lowell says. That's what Biden's Papa Biden's defenders say. They were just loans, harmless loans. Yeah, Biden's $40,000 in Chinese money that landed in his personal bank account um, is labeled as a loan repayment. But the question, you know, Larry, is not what the money was for, but where it came from. It mm -hmm. came from China. Investigators have tracked at least $24 million from Beijing to Hunter, and then he funneled it through this labyrinth of shell companies and it eventually landed into the greedy hands of Biden family members. Frankly, that figure of $24 million is only a fraction of the total cash haul. You have to factor in millions from Russia, that's documented, mm. millions more from Ukraine, 
that's documented. Kazakhstan, Romania, a half a dozen other countries over which Joe Biden exerted influence. You add it all up, and, you know, Larry, you're a lot closer to $50 million that was Mm -hmm. banked by the Bidens in these suspected influence peddling schemes. But, you know, the U.S. Attorney David Weiss in his indictment sedulously avoids any connection to influence peddling and corruption and only tax evasion. It is a clever feint, and anybody who actually is paying attention uh, realizes it. So, Greg, what um, talk about Weiss. Weiss is the special counsel. He brings this indictment with these charges. Uh, is his job over as special counsel, or does he continue, or what? Well, he'd like it to be over, uh, but, you know, he's knee-deep in this. And, you know, uh, this is the guy who wanted to uh, bring no charges at all. Mm. Uh, There was a signed document by investigators and prosecutors um, earlier this year, early part of this year, in which they were going to bring six serious felony charges. Mm. Uh, And I think some of those had to do with influence peddling. Um, But he ripped it all up. Uh, He conjured up instead the sweetheart deal for Hunter, and only when a federal judge in Delaware blew it up was he forced to bring the gun charges. And and now by virtue of the credible testimony of IRS whistleblowers, he was forced to bring these new charges. But as I say, he was publicly shamed into doing the right thing, following the law, and bringing charges. But he omitted the most important criminal charges that should have been brought a long time ago. So those gun charges are still out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course they are. Um, I mean, they're going to go to trial or I'm just trying to figure out, does Weiss continue as special counsel, let's say, pursuing the gun charges? Okay, I don't know whether he goes into court uh, on the tax charges? Does he represent himself in court? I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to figure out. Nobody seems to have asked him, and what else are you going to do? Is your work done, or what else are you going to do? I, that's the part I haven't heard yet. Well, he always hides behind, hey, uh, charges may have been filed, but it's still an ongoing investigation, right. holding out the hope that he might right. bring further charges. Uh, you'd be a sucker to believe that. But it allows him to say, hey, according to Department of Justice rules, I can't talk about uh, the target of an ongoing investigation. So, you know, he'll clam up. Uh, That's certainly what he's doing. And that's basically what Hunter's going to say. I can't talk about this because we're in court. Right. How convenient. Right. We have charges on guns. We have charges on taxes. So I can't say anything. My hands are tied. Right. I mean, that's that's what he's going to do. I, I I don't know when he was supposed to appear. I think it was Tuesday. I'm not sure. But that's he may show up. But that's what he's going to say. Right. With his lawyer, Abby Lowell. Yeah. I, you know, it's unclear. I mean, he has indicated before he wasn't going to show up. But, yeah, you know, his yeah. I, his lawyer will probably send a letter. that says my client will now invoke the fifth if he's forced to testify. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's no coincidence, as you and I talked yesterday, that. These charges 
were suddenly accelerated uh, and revealed literally days before Hunter was supposed to testify, uh, thus, you know, giving yeah. him uh, the ability to invoke the fifth. Uh, you know, that that was not a coincidence. Oh, right. It wasn't a coincidence. All right. We'll stop. Uh, we're going to take a break and then come back. We're talking with Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. And Greg's latest book is The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back, folks. This is The Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Now, back to The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking to Greg Jarrett about Hunter Biden. And uh, coincidentally, he gets busted a couple of days before he was supposed to depose in front of the um, House Oversight Committee. It's a hell of a thing. Anyway, Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst, New York Times bestselling author, and his latest book is The Con Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. Um, don't forget his earlier book, um, on the Scopes monkey trial, Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan. Uh, Greg, so what happens here? Uh, the House looks like it might vote this week. Uh, Speaker Mike Johnson said they might vote to authorize, formally authorize an impeachment inquiry. But I don't know what um, I don't know what Jamie Comer is going to do uh, because he's not going to have Hunter Biden. Um, and if Biden shows up, as you said, he'll probably take the fifth or say something. I can't talk because of this uh, indictment. So what happens here? Well, I think the committee uh, continues to uh, conduct its investigation. Uh, whether or not uh, they gain approval for a formal impeachment inquiry and then proceed further to vote on articles of impeachment, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. I, I do think though, and I, I've said this before, uh, while there are sufficient grounds to bring articles of impeachment uh, against Joe Biden for essentially betraying his country and selling out uh, so that his family could get rich, I think it's unwise uh, to bring an impeachment against Joe Biden in an election year. I think uh, that would be foolhardy, and you know, the boomerang effect on Republicans for doing it, mm. I think, would be severe. Uh, I think it's better to continue uh, full force with the investigation, produce incriminating evidence, present it to the American public, allow them to make a decision. Because the solution historically to our problems can always, Larry, be found at the ballot box. People right. are fairly smart. Right. Leave it up to them. Don't take mm. that decision-making away from them by trying to remove uh, a duly elected president in an election year when he's up for re-election. Yeah, just get more checks, connect more dots, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, probably bring back the IRS whistleblowers. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I don't think that an actual impeachment it won't go through the Senate anyway, and then we'll see what the voters think uh, in a little less than a year's time. All right, Greg Jarrett, thank you ever so much. Fox News legal analyst, his book, by the way, The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. Folks, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to bring in the great uh, Alan Dershowitz, uh, this whole anti-Semitism stuff. 
the uh, presidents of Penn and Harvard and MIT, are st- they still have their jobs for some reason. I don't think they should. I'm Kudlow. Dershowitz up next. Please stay with us straight ahead. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So we talked at the beginning of the show about this incredible wave of anti-Semitism and, among other things, the failure of some of our leading universities, our most elite universities, and the presidents don't want to do anything about it, and their testimony before Congress this past week was absolutely pathetic. Anyway, we're going to bring in the great Alan Dershowitz, Professor Emeritus at Harvard Law School, who writes uh, bestsellers at one after another. His latest book, War Against the Jews, How to End Hamas Barbarism. Uh, Professor Dershowitz, welcome, sir, as always. Um, As far as I know, here on Saturday, um, the presidents of Penn, Harvard, and MIT still have their jobs, and I don't know why. I don't know why either. By the standards articulated by President Gay of Harvard herself, She should be forced to resign. She is not an advocate of free speech. Um, She, when she was the dean of Harvard College, fired Ron Sullivan, um, who was a dean of one of the houses, Winthrop House, uh, because, quote, he made students feel unsafe because of who he represented. He had represented Harvey Weinstein for a brief period of time. Hmm. She has shown no sensitivity to free speech. I'll give you a personal example. I was probably the most well-known professor at Harvard for 50 years. I taught 10,000 students. I have not been allowed to speak at Harvard since I retired uh, Mm. 10 years ago. I have not been allowed to speak at Brooklyn College, City College of New York. My free speech and the free speech of those who want to hear my views on Israel have been totally suppressed without a word from these three presidents who are now making apology letters saying, oh, you don't understand, it's free speech, free speech, free speech. These presidents are at the forefront of disciplining people who have microaggressions. Let me give you an example from Columbia University. The other day, a student at Columbia University in a film class put on part of the film show about the Holocaust. The teacher reprimanded her saying, we don't want to hear about Jewish suffering now. We only want to hear about the suffering of the people of Gaza. It was inappropriate for you to show that film. I mean, censorship, lack of free speech dominates college campuses today. And how dare these presidents say the only thing that there's free speech for is to call for genocide against the Jews. That's free speech. That's free speech. But microaggressions against black people, against gay people, against transgender people, that's not permitted. Only against the Jews. So it's not about free speech. It's about a double standard. And none of these presidents has in any way tried to justify their double standards. Penn has been among the worst in applying microaggressions and and, and disciplining uh, teachers and students for saying things that violate their code of conduct. But calling for genocide for the Jews? No, no, no. That depends on context. It's just just disgusting. Well, you've got... um, So it was reported yesterday, Professor Dershowitz, that um, Penn President Liz McGill... Uh, they had a special board meeting to yeah, see whether yeah. they're going to keep her or not. I mean, the way I look at this with all these presidents, um, they're on trial, but the whole college is on trial. The university is on trial. This oh, is I a, completely agree with right? you. Right? This these, is a yeah. No, yeah, please these continue. These presidents have introduced 
and have compounded one of the worst academic offenses that ever occurred, and that is the creation of these billion-dollar bureaucracies called diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm. They are racist to the core, and they are the incubators for anti-Semitism. Now, it sounds good, diversity, but by diversity, they mean not diversity of opinions. They don't want to include conservatives or, or Christians or uh, people who have different views from them. It's only diversity of skin color. Equity is the exact opposite of equality. If you dare quote Martin Luther King, I have a dream that someday my children will be judged not by the color of my their skin, but by the content of their character. That's a microaggression that could get you disciplined. Mm. And inclusion expressly, as President Larry Summers uh, put it some years ago, expressly excludes Jews. So until these presidents get rid of, get rid of this DEI abomination, we're going to see more and more and more anti-Semitism. These three presidents very likely are going to be fired. Oh, they'll probably uh, be given cushy jobs and promoted and become emeritus this and emeritus that. But I suspect that certainly the president of Penn won't be around six months from now. Mm. And I think the dominoes will begin to fall. Um, what's happened is in this season, you know, Ecclesiastes says to everything there's a season. This was the season for picking woke progressive presidents mm. who have mm. no sensitivity toward uh, Israel, toward Jews, and are basically responsive to the loudest, leftist, uh, most woke voices on campus. And they're the wrong people at the wrong time and the wrong job. Larry Summers has done a good job. You know, I know him well, Alan. I've known him for many, many years, and I'm proud of him. I, he and I don't always agree, blah, blah, blah. But the fact yeah, is he's, he's he spoke out beautifully, and he continues to speak out. And he's a very prestigious guy. I agree with you. And, you know, he, he got in trouble because he stated something that was scientifically disputable. My wife, who's a PhD in neuropsychology, happened to agree with him. Others disagreed with him. And he got fired. There was a great cartoon in a local newspaper when Larry got fired. It had him on his hands and knees begging the board of overseers saying, no, I didn't say women are not as good at math as men. I said Israel is a genocidal state. Now can I get my job back? <laughs> you know, uh, Larry has been a man of courage. A friend of mine who was president of a major university said the one quality that does not exist for being a college president is courage. Mm. And these three, you know, mm. I compare them to the three monkeys sitting up on the stage, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. They have no courage. They have no principles. They have no core. All they do is issue statement after statement, depending on who threatened to cut off funding most recently. Mm. Um, and, and what we need are, are university presidents who, who have some some principles and some core, and we need to get rid of two things at universities, and it's very controversial, this BDS bureaucracy and these specialized departments. There should never be a department of black studies, mm. of gay studies, of Asian studies, even of Jewish studies. Mm. You go to university to learn how to think, not to be propagandized by professors. If you If you try to imply critical race theory in a classroom, you're going to get you're going to get disciplined. You can't be critical. You have to be uncritical. These departments are cheering squads mm. for their particular components, and they pit one group against each other and create a zero-sum game, which is why today on campus you have this 
horrible controversy that uh, that allows only free speech against Jews, but not against anyone else. What I don't understand, I mean, the the kids who start parroting what these uh, crazy teachers are teaching, I mean, these are smart kids in theory. It's not easy to get into Harvard or Penn or MIT or wherever. Uh, I had a prison term at Princeton many, many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. How can these kids just accept this stuff? Well, first of all, some of them are just useful idiots. They just follow anything. If it's left, it's right. Mm -hmm. But let's never forget who brought Hitler to power. Mm -hmm. Students at the University of Munich, at Berlin University, at Heidelberg University. Let's Mm -hmm. remember who brought the Ayatollahs to power. Remember who took over the American embassy? They weren't adults. They were kids. They were mm. students who took over the embassy. Remember who who was Stalin's biggest supporters? Mao Zedong's biggest supporters? Paul Potts' uh, biggest supporters were all students. So don't give students a pass. Mm. They can be the most dangerous elements in any society. And that's what's happening today at Harvard, MIT, and, and all these other schools. And the worst thing about it is they're our future. Students Mm. who are today calling for genocide against the Jews um, and calling for the end of America, basically just scratch an anti-Zionist, you find somebody who's anti-American. These are our future leaders. Ten years from now, they'll be running for Congress. Twenty years from now, they'll be running Mm. for the presidency. They'll be in the editorial rooms of the New York Times. They already are. Mm. And CNN, uh, which have been part of the problem. Remember that Hamas uses what they themselves call the CNN strategy. Kill as many Jews as possible, provoke Israel into responding, hide the terrorists and their rockets in the tunnels among civilians, know that Israel will inevitably have to kill some civilians, then parade the babies in front of CNN, and the world will turn against Israel. Mm. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, Mm. rinse, repeat. They Mm. do that over and over again. They've been doing it for the last 20 years, and they'll continue to do it. If there's a ceasefire now, which the general, which the Security Council called for, thankfully, uh, it was vetoed by the United States. Professor Discher, tell us about the book, War Against the Jews, How to End Hamas, Barbarism. I love selling good books on this show. Tell uh, us some well, more. Thank you. Well, you know, on October 7th, it was a Saturday, and I generally don't try to write uh, books on, on Saturday, but this was a special day, and I dropped everything I was doing, and I decided to try to start writing a book. And the publisher said, if I can get it to him within 30 days, we'll publish it. And I got it to him within 30 days. And it's out there now. It's only two months after, um, you know, October 7th. And it starts with October 7th, but it goes back to October 6th, the lack of preparation, the lack of intelligence. But it focuses a lot on, on, on October 8th. Before Israel ever fired a shot, before Israel ever went into Gaza, Groups like the National Lawyers Guild, a despicable group of hard-left lawyers Mm. that that, that are in every major law school in the country, every major law school in the country, um, issued a statement saying that Hamas was right, praising Hamas. Mm. Thirty-three groups at Harvard Mm. blamed it all on on Israel. And and so the book is all about about that. Look, I have to write. Why do I have to write? Because schools won't allow me to speak. Harvard won't allow me to speak. Cardoza Law School, oh, a Jewish geez. law school that was oh. originally part of Yeshiva University, yep. turned down an opportunity to have me speak free without expenses mm. and to talk to their students about Israel. The dean said, no, we're not ready for Dershowitz. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're I ready know some, for, 
people at Cardozo. Yeah. Yeah, well, a- you just tell them that they're part of the problem. I can't speak at City University of New York. I can't speak at any of these places. So don't tell me that mm. we're trying to suppress free speech when people call for the genocide of the Jews. It's the free speech of people who support Israel that's being suppressed at colleges and universities all over the United States today. Well, you're a great leader, Professor Schwartz, and you're going to be a historical figure, and I'm glad you're doing all this stuff. And you've been great coming on this show and the TV well, show, folks. I love folks. being on your show. I love Professor, being on your show. Professor Alan Dershowitz, uh, emeritus of Harvard Law School. The name of the book, very important book, obviously, War Against the Jews, How to End Hamas Barbarism. It's out there. You can get it on one click. Professor Dershowitz, thank Thank you. Can't thank you enough for Saturday. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we're going to take a look at the jobs numbers and the inflation numbers and the interest rate outlook from the great John Carney of Breitbart News. I'm Kudlow. Buy Dershowitz's book, please, folks. Buy Dershowitz's book. Very important stuff. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. Back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. You have to follow John Carney at Breitbart News. He's the co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. You have to follow him. It's really great stuff. Um, John, welcome back to the show. And Thank so you, let me ask you, I know you're on you're on the TV show yesterday. So just going to think about our conversation. So let me get this right. We're going to have a soft landing, not a recession, and we are going to have basically no inflation, basically hitting the Fed's target or close enough to it. They've made great, pro- and everything's going to turn out okay. It's like it's going to be all right, Mom. <laughs> Grandma, it's going to be okay. Is that is that the forecast, or is the you know more risks? to it. Like NABE says, half of the NABE economists, business economists say there's going to be a recession. Uh, Business uh, Investors Daily Tips Poll says 50% think we're already in a recession. But the numbers are coming out differently. What do you make of this? So I think that we will not have a recession, but I think the Fed is going to run into trouble getting to 2%. I think that we're going to be we're, we're, we will not hit two percent on a consistent basis next year, and so the recession risk is if the Fed wakes up to the idea that actually inflation isn't going to come down to the target. There's already calls. Um, Mohammed El Elarian said that uh, he thinks the Fed should target three percent, and there's going to be uh-huh. pushback against the two percent. So three uh-huh. percent, they'll be fine. Maybe even get down to two point five, but. To get to 2%, I think will require additional interest rate hikes, monetary tightening. We've seen in the last month that, you know, the, the tenure has come down a lot. We've seen basically financial conditions loosen a lot. That's going to make it much harder for the Fed to get to 2%. So the recession risk is alive, but only because the Fed can't get to 2% with hmm. current financial conditions. They're going to have to tighten, and that brings back the recession risk. I mean, uh, I, a couple weeks ago, let's say a month ago or something like that, when the 10-year 
uh, blasted off and got over 5%, right? Now, whatever it peak was, 505, yep. I don't know. You would know. Everybody was saying, and to some extent the Fed was saying, uh, okay, the market's doing it for us. The market's tightening for us. But now, as you noted, the 10-year is way down. It's, it closed at 423, went up a couple basis points yesterday. But it's it's fallen almost 100 basis points. So the market's not doing it for them, okay? Is that's their that's their dilemma? That's right. The the big risk here when they say, "Oh, the market's doing the tightening," is the market can do undo the tightening very easily. <laughs> right. yes. And we actually got all, we got down to four point one two percent on the ten year. Mm. In mm. other words, it was coming you know just a couple good pieces of financial information you know data away from falling below four percent. And I still think that's a risk. Actually, I think that we may get the ten year <laughs> below four percent. But what, and one of the problems is when the Fed says the market will do, us, do it for us, then everybody then says, okay, then there's no more hikes and the 10-year falls, right? So you end up in this vicious circle where unless people think the Fed is going to tighten, the 10-year keeps falling. When the Fed says we don't need to tighten, uh, then the 10-year, you know, keeps falling. When they say, we're, no, we do need to tighten, then the 10-year goes up. In other words, these, the, the Fed policy can't depend on where the market is because the market reacts to what the Fed policy is. So you think sometime early next year, the Fed will start to tighten some more, snug up some more? I think, well, I think they should decide that early next year. Hmm. The big question is how politically independent really is the Federal Reserve? Right. Right. I think that they are going to be under tremendous pressure uh, luckily, Lael Brainerd, who was arguably one of the most partisan members of the Federal Reserve, she's now she's not at the Fed anymore. She's a very smart woman, but she's now in the Biden White House, which you know tells you where she she's, was. All she's along. got my old job. She's the director yeah. of the National Economic Council. It's a very big job, by the way. Uh, as you she, as you taught me, Larry, it's one of the most powerful jobs in the United States. Well, you know, you got a lot of access to the president, and you kind of control the president's agenda. But you know, your point. All right, Jay Powell. I mean, this is a second term. Uh, if Trump wins, I don't think he'll be reappointed. But I'm not sure Jay cares. I mean, you know, he's going to get on in years. Uh, it's not, not as old as Joe Biden. But you're asking the question, in an election year, uh, when they're a point away from their target, will they tighten? That's a very interesting question, John. Carney. And there's a lot very of pressure, tricky. not just political pressure, but social pressure on these guys not to do anything that would be perceived as helping Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. They don't want to, you know, so I'm not saying that they'll, you know, that they would intentionally, you know, fix the interest rates to help Biden. But if but they will avoid doing anything that would be perceived as helping uh, a Republican get elected, but especially Donald Trump, if he's the nominee, which he's going to be. Mm. So I think that uh, I, I think that they will maybe decide that they can hold off. And by the way, can you imagine the fireworks if they hold off on raising interest rates next year, even though inflation stays hot? Trump comes into office and they immediately decide to start raising rates. Mm. He'll get That's furious. Be a He'll be wild. furious. He would be absolutely furious. You're right about that. I mean, I know him well. He, he will not uh, like that. Uh, John, just the last 30, 40 seconds. Um, 
you've got a lot of negative indicators out there, the leading economic indicators and the ISM manufacturing. I mean, how good is the economy going to be? It looks like it's in the fourth quarter, what, 1%, 2%? Yeah, look, we're not going to have the kind of year we had in 2023 where mm. the economy grew generally at above 2%. Mm. Uh, we're going to have a 1% to 2% year next year by all indications. Uh, the Fed really wants that to happen, by the way. They think 1.8% is as, as, mm. as good as you can get, and they want it to be below that. So uh, I, I think we're in for, you know, 1.5 and 1.8% growth next year. Right. Um, but inflation is going to be still be a big problem. All right. John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and he is the co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. You can get that, folks, on the Breitbart website. I'm Kudlow. Stock market work after this. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to reset. You can uh, get us live streaming on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. And during the week, you can see us on uh, television, Fox Business Network, FBN. Name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, 4 to 5 p.m. every day on Fox Business. And um, if you can't get there at 4, just uh, text your favorite 9-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. All right, there you have it. It does replay at 7, by the way. We're going to do some stock market work. We've got David Bonson, the Bonson Group CIO, founder and managing director and the author of DividendCafe.com. And we have Mike Ozanian, Assistant Managing Editor of Forbes Media, co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. It's a very good show. Hey, Mike, uh, the Yanks got a hitter, so they got themselves a hitter at least for a year. Give me a hey. quick quick rundown. You know I, I have to talk Yankees with you. Well, I, we got uh, two good hit, a great hitter and a good hitter. We got Soto. At least for a year, as you said, before he becomes a free agent. And we didn't really give up much for him at all. Uh, probably the second best hitter in the American League now, behind Otani. Mm -hmm. A lefty, compliment Judge as a righty. And then, you know, I think under the radar a little bit is they, they got Alex Verdugo from the Red Sox. Uh, you know, not a lot of power, but a, a, a very good, consistent hitter. Hits the ball, Larry. You're going to love this guy. He hits it to all fields. Mm -hmm. Not a you know, line drive hitter hits it where it's pitched. So, uh, you know, we were near the bottom of the league in offense last year. Uh, and I think that uh, kudos to Brian Cashman. I, I, I think he did not give up much. Uh, the Padres were under financial duress. So uh, he was able to get Soto for not much. So good for them and uh, good for us as Yankee fans. Contact hitters. The Yankees need contact hitters desperately. This is unbelievable. Yeah, well, you're going to love Verdugo. He is that. And both of these guys, Larry, another thing you're going to love, they play every day. Right. These are guys that, you know, these aren't 120-game players. They're mm -hmm. everyday players. So uh, that's going to be really, really good with us, uh, for us. And, and in the Soto trade, also a little under the radar, is we got a, we got a center fielder who doesn't hit much but is a tremendous, tremendous fielder, tremendous defensive player. So uh, I don't think Cashman's done yet. I think he's going to move a few more pieces around. But uh, so far, it's looking very good. 
David Bonson, you're not a Yankee fan, are you? California. No, really, I'm a huge Yankee fan. I, I, uh, yeah? I was bo- born and raised as an Angels fan, even though my dad was a Dodgers fan in Southern California. But then when I moved to New York City, it was a very easy uh, adoption for the Yankees because mm. the Angels had decided they were embarrassed to be in Orange County and illegally changed their name to the Los Angeles Angels. <laughs> for those who are familiar with with Anaheim, it is uh, no. It would be you know it would be like some team out in uh, hypothetically New Jersey calling themselves the New York Jets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 that's great. That's great. I you know what? We're going to go to a Yankee game this year, David. We're going to go to a Yankee. I love it. Yeah, no, we're going to go up. Uh, they're always inviting me to sit in the owner's box uh, up there. We're, we'll go to a Yankee game <laughs> now that I hear this. David Bonson, what's going on in the stock market? Um, it's having a great year, turns out, and the numbers are coming. We just had John Carney from Breitbart. We were talking about uh, soft landing, and then the question is whether the Fed's going to get inflation down to two percent uh, or not. They're close; it's around three, I guess, three and a half percent. Give me a rundown. Give me an overview, David Bonson, please. Well, the first thing I have to comment on is that last part about the Fed's going to get inflation down. You know, Larry, that was always my concern when we were blaming the Fed for all the inflation is that we were going to give them all the credit when it came mm-hmm. down. And I don't really think either is totally true. Um, but as far as the three and a half now, the only thing I'll say is I think it is two. I, the shelter inflation is 34% of CPI. And if anyone believes that rents and housing prices are still going up 8% a year, I encourage them to try to rent their house out and see how that goes. Hmm. Um, the lag effect of shelter is adding uh, over a point. And so we have a two-handle now. Um, Now, look, that disinflation um, was absolutely going to happen, whether they tightened or not, because of the supply chains reopening and various elements of uh, the economy normalizing. Energy is the big problem. The Fed can't control the Biden administration's absurd energy policy. So, you know, if they end up getting a soft landing, it won't be because they orchestrated it. It's because there's a lot of spontaneous order in the world, as Hayek taught us, and and sometimes you can get lucky. Well, you know, those. <clears throat> let's talk energy for a second. Despite uh, OPEC trying to tighten production, uh, and we don't know that they are. I mean, it's voluntary. We're not sure who's producing what or who's not producing what. I think it's interesting, David, that... Um, Crude oil prices have come down. Let's see, West Texas, 71 bucks. Uh, Brent crude, 75, 76 bucks. Gasoline nationwide is uh, below 320, I think, uh, down from $5 not so long ago. So whatever, uh, those are counterinflation. Those are disinflation numbers. They're almost deflation numbers. Yeah, that's right. And so the question that people have to ask, which is really important going into 2024, is, is recent oil weakening a sign of a demand erosion and potential recession? Or is it what it's been all year? As we've round tripped from 67 to 87 and back about three times. Mm. Um, Look, I think, Larry, that Iran is flooding the market. I really do. I think Mm. that they anticipate some more sanctions coming. They anticipate more 
world response to whatever their role was with Hamas. And I think that they've been very effective at getting a lot more oil out the last few weeks. But this thing of oil coming from 80 back to 70, it has happened at least three times this year. Oil's just stuck in that range. And um, it's true that U.S. production has come way up. But what people miss the point on this, so the, the Biden administration is so funny. They're now bragging about the amount of oil being produced today. Um, and, and I thought that their whole point was to brag about not doing that. So they give these mixed signals, like when they brag about the deficit uh, coming down, even though it doesn't, uh, because their legislation that was going to kill the deficit um, higher didn't pass. Uh, bragging about things they weren't able to do is so strange to me. But the truth is they're not clearing the market. That's all that matters. It is not about the absolute level of production. It's are you producing enough to meet demand? And when they're begging Venezuela and when they're begging Saudi Arabia, they know it's because their policies are keeping us from clearing the market. Hmm. Um, Mike Gozanian, what's your market outlook these days? Well, I think uh, as it relates to oil, uh, aside from what uh, David so astutely pointed out, I, I would point out it there possibly be some concerns over China's economic health and demand for oil. We know that Moody's lowered the outlook on China uh, uh, to negative from stable. Uh, I think that that uh, is something that uh, traders are betting on. And also, you know, the, I think there's a little bit of a dollar play here in that uh, despite the tremendous government spending, the dollar has been strong recently. Mm-hmm relatively mm-hmm. strong. And I think that's because traders are betting that the Eurozone will have some interest rate cuts. And I think relative to the Euro, the dollar is looking stronger. And as you know, oil is bought in dollars. So I think that that's also had, had a positive effect. Uh, in terms of the economy overall, I mean, the last I peaked, the Atlanta Fed's GDP now model was looking at only 1.2% growth in this, in this current quarter, uh, which begs the question, you know, during the third quarter, uh, earnings grew just under 5%. And there were many more positive earnings surprises than negative. Uh, so for the fourth quarter, can that be maintained? Uh, it's not looking like it right now. Uh, because you're having more negative revisions than positive revisions, particularly with revenue. Uh, I've been one of those that have, you know, this has been a consumer-driven economy, and and it's also been a consumer-driven stock market. Uh, The consumer discretionary uh, section has been phenomenal. Uh, I thought consumers were sort of with their debt levels. It was unsustainable. I don't know. I kind of still feel that way. But uh, given the market's multiple of about 18, 19, mm. Wall Street is not seeing it that way. Mm. David Bunsen, uh, um, is there downside risk to profits? Is there downside risk to the economy? Well, there's definitely a downside risk to the economy. You know, I, I take the view about the consumer that we all will do well to just assume no matter what, they're going to surprise us to the upside. Because until they run out of money, until they run out of credit, Americans are living this one long game of let's make a deal. They just don't stop shopping. They don't Mm. stop spending until they run out of money. 
And he's right about the absolute debt levels seeming to be very high. But I should point out, I think a better analysis is the debt compared to income, the debt compared to assets. Those ratios are not that high compared to historical levels. There's room there with the consumer. But, you know, Larry, I'm a supply sider and you're my hero and mentor. And we learned a lot. There's there's Laffer and Forbes in there. But John Baptiste taught us you have to produce before you consume. Mm. And that's the area that has concerned me about the economy since the financial crisis. We've never gotten non-business, <clears throat> excuse me, non-residential fixed investment back up. Uh, right. There was one year in 2018 after the Trump tax cuts, corporate tax reform, repatriation of foreign profits, uh, instant expensing, more R&D. Those things were very supply side, especially reduction of corporate marginal rates. You got a little boost for one year in business investment. But other than that, CapEx has been a little lower. Now, you know what? It may start to come back. There's a lot of onshoring, a lot of reshoring. There's some of those things that could boost some American business activity. But it's been very light, and and uh, that, to me, is the question going forward for the economy. All right, let's take a break. Uh, David Bonson of the Bonson Group, he was the founder and managing director He's the author of TheDividendCafe.com and Michael Zanian, assistant managing editor for Forbes Media and co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with more on stocks. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks with David Bonson, Bonson Group CIO. He's the founder and managing director of that company. And he's the author of DividendCafe.com. And Michael Zanian, assistant managing editor of Forbes Media and co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. Uh, gentlemen, let's talk about interest rate outlook. David Bonson, what's your outlook for rates? That part's easy. They're going lower. (laughs) (laughs) How much? Larry, Larry, they're going lower because of the fact that economic growth is not assumed over the next 10 years to be robust. It is not assumed that with $32 trillion of national debt and deficits growing still, that we're going to get the economic growth train back. And in order, uh, you know, all the bond yield is long term is people's assumption about inflation and growth. And nominal GDP and bond yields are basically very aligned. And nominal GDP expectations going forward are much lower than they've historically been. What's um, that's just for another uh, nominal GDP growth? Are you looking for like five percent? I would love five. I think uh, we're going to get four, and and I think that's the problem. Is three to four, which was sort of the post-crisis, uh, mm-hmm. pre-Trump range. Um, is where I think the long-term trajectory is. It's much more Japan-like. You know, Japan was lucky to get 1% nominal GDP. Um, I think that's really where we're headed, unfortunately. I don't think it has to be that way. I've never felt it had to be that way. But uh, lacking a real pro-growth agenda, it's going to be very difficult to get five. Um, Again, you may get little spurts of it. I mean, there's this chance of a CapEx boom around onshoring that provides a year or two of higher nominal GDP. But, you know, if you're going to get two inflation and you're going to get three, which was our post-war 
uh, average of real GDP, you'd get five. I don't see those things happening. Mike Kozanian, uh, would you buy bonds, uh, the 10-year at 423? Um, would you buy it? I, I actually would. Uh, I, I agree with uh, what David's saying. Uh, I, I may not even be as sanguine on nominal GDP as he is, actually. I, I'd probably take the under on that, uh, given what the uh, revisions have been for revenue for companies. Uh, I, I certainly would. Uh, I also would go into the dollar right now. Hmm. Look, the closer we get to the election, uh, next year's election, uh, I know the Fed's not supposed to be a political body, but either is the Justice Department. And we <laughs> know how true, how true that is. So hmm. I think the less, even if inflation, the headline figure to remain where it is, I, I still think that the less likely it's going to become that the Fed is going to uh, uh, do anything to, to raise uh, interest rates and to combat inflation. So I, I agree totally with what David said. So, David, um, the best performing asset year to date is Bitcoin. That's up 169.7 percent, uh, 44,608. Actually, we'll round it up, 609. You're going to be a big buyer of Bitcoin, David Bonson? <laughs> No, I'll buy the same amount of it that I bought last year and the year before, uh, which is the same amount of Beanie Babies that I own. <laughs> oh, come on. Bitcoin is hot. It's very hot. Well, you know, Larry, when you're talking about it being hot, I hope you realize you're making an argument against it, right? I mean, this is, this is a, a, exactly the problem with these manias. Um, and I am a real fundamentalist. I mean, I, there's no internal rate of return. Um, you know, gold hasn't been around for 5,000 years. That I don't buy gold either. I, I can't wait it. I can't value it. I don't know without an interest rate or an earnings stream. I don't know how to value it. The Bitcoin is something that is worth whatever someone else is willing to pay. It's classic greater fool theory. And it's just not what we do. I've been burned on it before. I won't get burned on it again. And Michael Zanian, um, Bitcoin, and let's throw gold into it also. Would you be a buyer of Bitcoin? Would you be a buyer of gold? I've never understood Bitcoin. Uh, I've, never, I've, so I, I've never owned it. Uh, I've asked guys at the Forbes IT department who are, you know, wizards in this to explain it to me. They've painstakingly taken time, and I walk away just as quizzical as I was uh, when they first, uh, before they explained it to me. So, no. Uh, Gold's had a great run, uh, you know, recently. I, I anticipate that it'll stay strong uh, simply because of, of uh, the bad things going on in the world right now in, in, in the Middle East and, you know, with Israel and so forth. Uh, but uh, I, I, I like the dollar, and, and I think selective stocks are good right now. All right, we'll leave it there. Selected stocks. We're going to leave it there. Mike Kozanian, assistant editor of Forbes Matt Media and co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. David Bonson of the Bonson Group. Thank you, gentlemen. We appreciate it. Folks, we'll take a quick break. And on the other side, money and politics with Liz Peak and Steve Moore. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back.
from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're going to run some money in politics. We've... All right, kids, welcome. I have to ask you, did anybody see the Republican debate? I, I didn't see it. I didn't have any interest in it. Um, I just wondered, Liz, did you see it? <laughs> no, <laughs> I I didn't. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't, but I've watched all the rest. Uh, I gather it was a terrible night for Ramaswamy. He became really aggressive in a sort of unpleasant way. Not a great night for Nikki Haley, which was a little bit surprising. Um, but Ron DeSantis seems to have been the winner of that. Would you, were you watching Netflix instead? <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> Steve Moore, did you see the debate? No, I was watching uh, old episodes of Suits. <laughs> uh, Ouch. So, just a couple of observations. No, actually, I did not watch it, and I just did saw it, some of the excerpts. Did anybody it. watch it? I mean, then the no, the, the ratings were way, way down. And look, you know, it's the junior varsity <laughs> team. Let's let's face it. Yeah. And here's the thing that, but this is an important point. A big development this uh, t- last week or so was the Charles Koch network yeah. um, put all their chips behind uh, Nikki Haley, yeah. and. I want to just very quickly explain why I think that's a strategic mistake. Now, look, the the Koch network people are out there to try to stop Donald Trump. You know that, Larry. That's that's one of their major objectives. We have to stop Donald Trump. But if you wanted to do that, I think it's a mistake to get behind Nikki Haley. And here is why. Almost all of the polls, uh, Larry, are showing that if. The, the Nikki Haley's voters, the people who are going to vote for her, if she drops out of the race, those voters are likely to go to DeSantis, a good percentage of them. However, if DeSantis drops out of the race, the DeSantis voters are not going to go to Nikki Haley. Many, many of them are going to go to Trump. Mm. So I think it's a flawed story. I don't see a road to victory for Nikki Haley, frankly. I don't really see a victory, a road to victory for anybody but Donald Trump and the nomination. But I, I just think that um, I'd like, I would like to see one debate with Nikki Haley and with, uh, with DeSantis and with Donald Trump. Would you like to see that, Larry? No. I no, why? <laughs> An absolute, uh, because no. tr- Trump will slaughter them. Uh, look, they have the whole problem for Nick. Nikki Haley has no economic growth platform. Right. She doesn't know anything about the economy. In fact, right. uh, I looked at snippets, not this debate, but the one before. I looked at some snippets of it and kind of followed it in the press. She's attacking rich people, okay? Yeah. I, literally attacking rich people, yeah. like a and Bernie she wants State. to cut social security benefits. That's correct. So yeah. and and then it's all about debt, 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 and spending. She has no plans to do anything like that. I mean, DeSantis at least is a conservative on that stuff. Right. He doesn't articulate yeah. very well. If he did, he'd be in better shape. But Nikki Haley knows nothing about the economy. And on top of that, Nikki Haley wants to go to war in five or six countries simultaneously. I mean, she sort of is weird neocon hawk running. Right. Right. Makes no sense whatsoever. 
Uh, it's not what the country wants. It's exactly what Trump doesn't want. But it doesn't make any sense. I mean, Liz, I don't think she knows the issues is what I'm saying. And I think two years in the U.N. is not a qualification to run for president, period, full stop. I, I, well, I, she also is governor of South Carolina, which is not nothing. Um, but I, I actually have not heard, other than the fact that she is a hawk on energy, which I think is positive. Right. I mean, she's... Yeah. You know, I I don't think any of the Republicans disagree with the basic Trump agenda. That's right. that's why it's been very hard for them to gain traction, because let's right. face it, the right. Trump agenda worked uh, thanks yeah. to you guys and, and others. Uh, and I think most people are very much on board with it, but, you know, on board with confronting China, on board with uh, trying to get uh, NATO to do their fair share, et cetera. Um, and and lowering taxes, et cetera. So, I do, you know, I don't think there's tremendous daylight there, but I agree she has not pursued that theme to her advantage. And I think that's I think that's a mistake. Look, I, I don't know if you guys saw the recent like today's Wall Street Journal poll. Yeah. That's yeah. Out. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Trump is up big. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it, the journal says that's the first time that's happened. And Biden's approval rating is 37 percent. I mean, the only thing Biden looks to be winning on is abortion. Uh, And that, you know, we've seen that does drive turnout. And I guess that'll be an issue. But, boy, this was pretty difficult for uh, Democrats. And I think we'll just up the pressure on Biden to get out. The only other thing I should say that he wins on is tone in politics. And, you know, that's reasonable, I guess, although he's so, really just about as nasty as they come. So, so Larry, Larry uh, yesterday I was at Mar-a-Lago. They, I spoke at this, they have this Moms for America group, and, hmm. and Trump spoke at that, and, and afterwards he, I sat down with him for about a half an hour, hmm. and he wanted to talk a little bit about the economy, and hmm. I got to tell you, I mean, he, he just gets it. You know, yeah. He just yeah. gets it, and on every issue, he's spot on when it comes to the economy, what did he, uh, he, he say about the health of the economy? He's very worried about it, and mm-hmm. I am too. And mm-hmm. and he, and in fact, the first yeah. question is he asked me at her, about Herbert Hoover. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> oh, he, he thinks we're headed to that kind of situation. But he did he he loves you know what you're saying. He loves what Laffer is saying. Mm-hmm. And I, you know what I like about the new Donald Trump, and he's changed a lot in the last year and a half. I was very worried about him a year and a half because he was he was in the dumpsters. He was grousing all the time. He was complaining. Now it's a, a very forward-looking pro-America agenda. Yeah. He's got his game face on, Larry. He's the growth guy, Liz. Yep. He's the growth guy. Yeah, no, guy. look, I That's what need people that. want. People yep. are pessimistic about the future, and they want to give him another shot because they had a good period for a couple of years when he was president. And Steve's right. He's talking growth. Yeah. Nobody else focuses on that growth agenda. It's just so important. And he's talking issues, right? It's, I mean, he's, he's going to be in New York. He's got to do the stupid trial thing. Okay, so all right, we'll leave that aside. None of that stuff shows up in the polls. He's talking growth. He's talking drill, baby, drill. He's talking tax cuts. I don't know if you saw the Sean Hannity interview. Either. I did. I thought it was... Amazing. He, he was terrific on that yeah, stuff. Go yeah. one thing after another, one thing after another. So strong. By the way, that Wall Street Journal poll, 
if RFK Jr. is in there, he has uh, Trump has an even bigger lead over yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. Which is, well, I thought it was quite interesting. And I think he will be in there. I mean, he, you know, no one's paying any attention to him, but mm-hmm. he's still out there raising money and mm-hmm. campaigning. So, and I think he's on the ballot in a bunch of states. I'm not, I haven't kept track of that, but it's, it's definitely an issue. I'm rooting. For you know what's interesting about uh, yeah, uh, RFK I, I, Jr. I just wrote a column about him. Is you know he's using that line that Ronald Reagan used. Remember, Larry? I didn't leave the Democratic Party. Yeah. The Democratic mm-hmm. Party left me. Yeah. And he does it persuasively, Steve. Yeah, I mean, he does. You know, he talks about when, since when are the Democrats the party of war? I mean, right. it doesn't go much remarked, but we're at war effectively in two countries, and we're getting. You know, yesterday we were uh, our troops, our our sorry, our em- embassy uh, in Baghdad was shelled. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is pretty mm-hmm. unconscionable, and we have barely responded. So That's I think. By the way, Biden. it's he. Another no, no, Liz, another, Liz's point. Let's yep. focus on that. Yep. They're hitting us. They're hitting our troops. Okay. Yep. And we are not responding. And the pathetic thing is, you go to these press briefings which I cover very closely because it's just before our, our TV show. And this guy, John Kirby, gets up there. He says, well, the Houthis are doing this and the Houthis are doing that, and we know that Iran is behind it, okay? Okay, you got that right. Then the question asks by 150 million people who might vote or 200 million, what are you doing about yeah, it? And the nothing. answer is, wait for it, nothing. Yeah. And it's killing Biden. It's making him look so weak. Yeah, and and by the way, I had dinner. I sat next to Mike Pompeo to dinner a couple of nights ago. And, you know, he was very um, laudatory, talking about Trump and foreign policy and, and the fact that he was strong. And we talked about that, I think, still the pivotal moment of his foreign policy when he had, in 2017, uh, President Xi to dinner at Mar-a-Lago mm-hmm. and announced, as Trump said, over a beautiful piece of chocolate cake mm-hmm. that we had bombed Syria. <laughs> it so put the world on guard that we were not to be trifled with, that we would use our military if needed, etc. And my, you know, Pompeo said from then on, somebody, uh, the Germans or someone, German ambassador said, you know, the Germans are, were afraid of him. And he said, good. That's what yeah. we want. Yes. We want the world to be afraid of the United it's States absolutely. so they don't transgress. I mean, I'm glad. If, people, if people overseas think he's crazy, I think that's great. It was yeah. the same with Reagan. His finger was on the button. Yeah, right. fine. Don't mess with him. Steve, I want, I'm for Pompeo for vice president. That's an interesting choice. I, I love Mike Pompeo. Yeah. And um, so, <laughs> I, and by the way, I'm glad to hear you say, Liz, that he was saying positive things yeah. about Trump, because there was a while there when he was, you know, attacking him a little bit, but no, I, I think no. that's... A... He's very loyal. You okay, very that's good. He, I think he would serve again. You're seeing articles written now, Steve, good. where, oh, the next group is going to be so horrible, it's all going to be Steve Bannon, Steve Miller. No, I don't think that's... that's true. I think there are a lot of very, uh, you know, good people who will sign up, because it's the patriotic thing to do. Hello? Yep. Uh, yep. For a Trump second term. So, by the way, Steve uh, Pompeo is a supply sider. Oh, complete, he is total, complete supply sider, and he's great on foreign policy. I mean, you could put him back in the State Department, but I'd like to see him as vice president. Well, yeah. I think he's a brilliant guy. Yes, he's a very smart man. Uh, reads a lot. 
uh, and he's just good on the issues. He's solid on the issues. If you read his book, his book was really terrific. I think he's been quite loyal to Trump. I agree. Good, good. And that's good certainly and that's certainly the way our conversation sounded. So, did you guys think that the jobs number was a great number? Wait, before we do that, let's take a break. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Hold on. Okay. Break. Producers in my ear. Liz Peak, Fox News contributor, <laughs> Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and folks, uh, more money, probably most of these same stations after this show. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. And we are talking money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and the host of More Money after the show on most of these same stations. Uh, we can talk jobs. Uh, I'm just a bias. The great thing about these segments is it runs itself. I'm just <laughs> But I, I'll just say one thing, Liz. Uh, from the committee, from the hotline, uh, the biggest job gainer for yeah. the first yeah. 11 months of the year was, government. wait for it, government, <laughs> right, government, yeah. all right, go ahead, talk about jobs. Well, no, I, I think between the government additions and the revisions, 35,000 from September uh, downward, and also the fact that the manufacturing number was uh, totally yeah. Uh, buoyed by the UAW coming back to work, et cetera. I thought it was a lousy report. And mm. honestly, I kept looking for somebody out there to suggest that. And, oh, the word strong was on absolutely every single headline. It did not strike me as a particularly strong report. And the reason it's important, Larry, is I keep thinking, what could save Joe Biden? And mm. if the economy actually, if they have a soft landing and we begin to see rate cuts next year and so forth, could that save Biden? And I, yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I leave that up to you guys. What do you think? I think it could. I mean, but I, I'm skeptical that we will see a bit, any kind of big recovery next year. Um, Larry is right that it's not just government. Uh, Larry, do you know what the second biggest component of employment has been for the last year? Health. Healthcare. Healthcare. Yeah. You know, look, look, you know, we want healthcare, but the, the, these are people working in nursing homes. Yeah. <laughs> and we need yeah. to be we need to be producing things. In We're America. not producing so, anything. Yeah. Yeah. We need to be producing. Uh, we need manufacturing. We need construction, mining, mm. uh, you know, wholesale, uh, all of these things. Just not enough of it. And so uh, that's one. Now, there was a pretty good um, wage number. So that's good. Um for, because for 24 of the last 27 months, wages have been uh, running behind yeah. uh, inflation. And I think that's the, that's the part of this that the White House seems to be mystified by. They don't understand why it is that people are so angry. And mm. it's because they're in this Washington bubble. They're not understanding that mainstream America is really financially stressed out right now. I, can I ask, I'll add a couple of things about the jobs report. I also thought it was interesting that retail was down here that, you know, as we head yeah. into the Christmas season, that seemed to me a little bit of a warning sign. And that kind of dovetails with a lot of comments by CEOs of retailers saying, you know, we're not looking for such a great season. We'll see. I mean, certainly Cyber Monday, Black Friday was pretty good. Uh, but I kind of, there was a story in the journal about luxury goods piling up at stores and so forth. 
I, I um, and another data point that consumer borrowing I think is up now nine percent year over year. That isn't great, and I think since the economy hinges so much on the yeah. consumer, I think we have to be watching that pretty carefully. And the only thing, mm-hmm. last thing I'd say is Biden. <laughs> Biden was out at a fundraiser yesterday or the day before, and he talked about you may have seen his yeah. uh, works projects. Uh, accounting for hundreds of billions, trillions, millions, kept going back. I mean, they're like a word salad, uh, <laughs> not not getting yeah. to the actual number. But if you look at manufacturing jobs in December 2019, just before COVID, uh-huh. we were at 29.9 million people working in manufacturing. Right now, it's 30. In other words, there's been not no change. So this so, whole idea yeah. that we're building the economy from the middle, I, I can't even say those words. I'm so tired of hearing them. But that, that we're fueling a boom in manufacturing, it's complete nonsense. So while we're on the subject of jobs, Larry uh, and Liz, can you guys explain to me how these three dunces got to be the president's? Of our major universities. Uh, I've never seen such low-talented dimwits in my whole life. And I think, what, is Harvard, Yale, and MIT? I forget which. Yeah. I mean, really? These people are running our universities? You should have heard Dershowitz uh, earlier on the show. Oh, he just took them apart. He should. And he's absolutely right. And uh, this woman at Penn, I think she's going to be fired very soon. But the problem is... Uh, Dershowitz went through this. The qualification is DEI, okay? Yes, definitely. Diversity, no equity. Doubt about it. Yeah, and that is. I mean, these are. You can see how weak these presidents were, and you yeah. can see institutionally what the problem is here. Yes. And look at the elite colleges; they're just going to fall in prestige. I mean, you don't see yeah. this stuff at southern state schools you don't see this stuff at ohio state you don't see it at lsu or alabama i mean so oh fine i'm sorry the ivy league has prestige they're losing their prestige people are not going to go there they're going the market's going to work here i I think the other problem larry is even if you dump elizabeth mcgill at university of pennsylvania these colleges are riddled with people i mean they are entirely uh, banked with people who are far left. I mean, that's yeah. just the bottom line. Yeah. So it's the faculty, it's the administrations. Uh, they've really gone down this path so far, it's going to take a generation to get them back. I, I well, really believe well, that. Ha- what about, worries ha- me is that the DEI that's infected, you know, the upper echelons of universities, I don't want that to happen in our major corporations, Larry. I want yeah. people to be elevated because of their talent, not their gender yeah. or color well, I or think, skin. I think, uh, I mean, I know you're right, but I think there's a backlash, isn't there? I mean, the yeah, there Disney is. story, there is. The Disney yep. story is very good. And, in you know, the Budweiser, I mean, there's a good backlash going on there. Again, markets work. How about $5 billion of student loans? There he goes again. <laughs> yeah. And I, what, the Supreme Court says no. Yeah, the other what? one... The other one is um, methane, okay? They're going to destroy natural gas and oil again. Uh, Rick Perry was on the show last night. You know, they could wind up closing 300,000 wells. 300,000 wells by this. And here's the thing. It's the states who regulate this. Remember, West Virginia versus EPA, West Virginia won. What is it about Biden? He doesn't want to abide by the law. And, of course... And of course, the border is the same thing. They will not abide by our laws. 
Uh, I'm, that's why he can't be saved, Liz. He can't well, be I, saved. Well, can, maybe so. And honestly, the, the problem is you have progressives basically threatening the entire – they're holding on to the entire Democratic Party – threatening to primary anyone who gets out of line. It's a really shocking thing that this sliver of people in this Democratic Party that want open borders uh, are are basically dictating to the president. I got to get out. Lovely stuff. Liz Peake, Fox News, Steve Moore, Prosperity Hotline. Steve Moore, more money coming up uh, after this show on many of these same stations. Thank you, kids. I appreciate it. Folks, great to be with you. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back next weekend.